You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. In today's episode, I speak with Jeannie Tarkenton, who's founder and CEO of Funding You. She started the company to provide a responsible loan option for academically achieving low-income students who needed last gap funds to complete college, but for whom the only available options were high interest rate credit cards. Her drive to solve this problem came from a decade of working in education, nonprofits in Atlanta, and understanding that a mother's education level holds the single strongest correlation to outcomes of infant mortality, child literacy, household employment and income, and the likelihood to live in poverty. Today, Funding You has originated $42 million in affordable student loans to more than 4,000 undergraduates, 40% of whom are from families with incomes of 40000 or less, and 60% are first-generation four-year college students. Funding You has raised about $80 million in equity and debt financing from investors, including Goldman Sachs, McKinsey Scott, and Desian's Capital. Jeannie is a graduate of Princeton University. She's launched three other successful quote-unquote startups, her children, Anna, Peter, and Robert, ages 22, 21, and 18. I'm an investor in the company and proud that I introduced her to the VC that led the seed round. We start very high level about the industry in this conversation, and we get very tactical for early-stage founders, so I hope you'll stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Jeannie, thanks so much for coming on. So excited to be here. Good to talk about all things startup and good. Wonderful. Tell me, is college worth it? All right. I'm going to flip the switch. I'm going to flip the script a little bit on you and say that I believe that all of us should be able to make that decision for ourselves and for our children based on our own well-informed sense of what we want to do and achieve in, in our lives. So I think that that is a question. I, I think the issue right now in the U.S. is, um, and certainly I encounter this um, as someone who works, as a, who started a company whose goal is to provide better pathways to complete college. I think we are going through some important analysis of the value of a college degree. Now, you and I could probably have five different hour-long podcasts on any of the following things. Should employers do, should employers hire based on skills plus education on skills alone? Do we as a, as a country have a certain classist approach to college? And then let's break that down. What college are we talking about? Are we talking about a decision around some kitchen tables where college costs and concepts of prestige are involved? Are we around another kitchen table where Somebody at the table maybe couldn't go to college and maybe two generations back because they were black wasn't even allowed to go to college. Are we in a home of poverty where more education is better? So my point is, and I think this is important to me, I know it is important to me, I worry and I see that impact entrepreneurs, social impact entrepreneurs and also investors and perhaps humans always want to sort of bring everything down to a binary, often want to bring things down to a binary argument, yes or no, black or white, is college good or bad? And I just think as humans, 
I just absolutely reject that. And I've found mostly I've been right that meaning it's not very simple in most things in life. Um, and that's widened the lens to starting companies that are, or investing in companies that are trying to make a difference in the fact that there are problems in our country, I'm US focused, with education, quality of education, access to education. Does education prepare us for the workforce? Does it cost too much? So I believe that I fight every day when I'm not fighting day to day to build this business intellectually, I feel I, I fight and resist and tell my team to resist any binary conversations, any binary way of thinking. So that's, that's my answer. The answer is it depends. And when it comes to funding you, I am dedicated to making sure that, that young people and families have the ability to make that decision without it being made for them because of the cost of college or the access or lack thereof of money to, to pay for college. So how's that? So in what cases is it worth it? Well, I would, I, there is a statistical and economic driven evidence that shows that if you want to be most highly employable and to advance highly in most companies and businesses of almost any description, that having a combination of college-like skills, critical thinking, deep written and basic, a sort of basic college level computation and writing skills, ability to interact with, with people who are like you or not like you in, in, a, in a conversation, ability to, to manage and distill your thoughts, having read them and then distill them into to writing. Those basic skills that in the U.S. generally come with a college degree and don't come in other environments. If those skills plus skills-based, so depending on the, the path you, you are interested in, medicine, tech, name it, uh, construction, if, if, those, if that combination of skills is, is what you, if what your career goals include moving to certain levels of jobs within the U.S. workforce, then college is worth it doesn't mean that college alone is what you will need to get there, but that is absolutely, if you look and talk to employers and you can sort of separate the noise from the reality about the skills they want and the skills that people have to be, to move up, to be promotable, to be the most insulated in times of economic downturn, that is absolutely a combination of skills you need for your specific job plus wider skills that generally in the U.S. right now are delivered in a two and four year college environment. So what extent is a college degree signaling versus those skills that you're talking about? Well, that's where I think that's an, a conversation. I think we as Americans are uncomfortable talking about classism and a college. When you when you talk to people, this is again, which kitchen table are you sitting at? I think this conversation about signaling is one that people have who have the ability and the luxury to consider whether they're going to a certain college versus another. So there's that, right? There's the signaling of what college. Now there's the signaling of, do you have a college degree or not? That to me is an empty argument. I think the problem is that people are really solving on that employers should employ based on skills, period. So, so that's sort of where the signaling 
kind of doesn't matter, right? The, the paradigm should be that employers hire people based on the skills they need. So I think that signaling, I find that signaling conversation a little bit emotional and I've read about it a lot. And I, I, I really do think that that is talking more about we in the US are classist, class, we, we do make certain judgments and have prejudice based on the class we perceive you to be in economically. And one of the things that has been part of that is the ability to go to and pay for college. So I, it's kind of, to me, a non-starter. The issue is it might be for some people, it might not be. It, it is the solution to that issue more has to do with a changing attitude towards how we hire. So this again loops back to, I think, what happens with social entrepreneurs and companies and investors or how the world of of double bottom line businesses, which is we are biting off a very, very difficult, very, very wide ranging problems. If you, for the most part, we're trying to, we social impact entrepreneurs want to try to chip away at enormous problems that have tentacles into all sorts of places. So, and I worry and I see, I feel a bit of a creep that I felt when I worked in the nonprofit world, which is this, I've got to say my part is the most important because there's a scarcity of resources. And if I do that, if I make something else look bad, then therefore it will benefit me. And I think there's a real problem with that specifically for social impact entrepreneurs, because I think we will be working against what I think is the spirit. And I say this as a business person, not as a a former nonprofit person. We want to build businesses to solve big problems and big problems require multiple solutions. And I think we more than any kind of entrepreneur should be very careful about staking certain circles around ourselves that in that continuum, let's call it about education. What's the right education? What's the right works, workforce development? There is clearly no one answer. And I think we are doing ourselves a very big disservice when we start to create these ISAs, income share agreements, are bad. Student loans are not bad. I know that's not the case. And when I remember that what I'm trying to do, which is what I remember every day, is change a very big problem, I resist that as well. So, and again, I'm not naive. I know I have to compete for investment. But what I want to tell you about is the absolute best company that I am building. I'll explain to you the TAM. I'll explain to you why there are competitors in the market. And then I want to talk to you about how my tech, my data, my customer service channel, I mean, my customer acquisition costs are, you know, efficient, how I'm tackling a inefficiency, both in education access and the financial markets. So in my best spirit, alongside my social impact entrepreneurs, I want us to resist that that, that creep that I have definitely felt in the last five, six, seven years. So that's my, I, I, I feel very passionately about this. Um, and if and when I have time to sit on panels, if and when I have time to, or when I have time to interact with my peers who are working on this continuum, in person, we do it well or, or better. I think it's it, when we are working to hone investment pitches, when we are trying to, to get things down to the sound bites, which are necessary for investment pitches, it's when we're not really doing our best. And that I don't know the answer to. I know we have to, there's certain structures for how, particularly when it comes to investing, about um, attracting investing, about investment, about, you know, and everything down to how a deck flows to a diligence room. So I'm not trying to sort of 
complain, but I, I do hope that in the wider range of both impact investors and impact entrepreneurs, we can continue at times to have, I think, larger, more important conversations about how this kind of company, these kind of companies solving these kind of problems are a little different. And maybe we should be a little comfortable, uncomfortable with, or get comfortable with being uncomfortable that, that that is the case. And it doesn't mean we're not building just as competitive companies that are just as profitable nor do, or investors are making bad decisions. You know, they don't need to feel defensive about it being social impact. And I, I think the industry is still sort of getting comfortable with some of that. You know, it's a little bit different. I spend a lot of the percentage of pitches and conversations with investors talking about what you and I were just talking about, which is important, but I it really ultimately comes down to what's your investment thesis and what's the TAM, right? And, and I find with impact investing, impact pitching, we, we get ourselves more into conversations about the big picture about the particular area we're trying to solve. Again, I don't have an answer and I'm not coming at this with a criticism. I, I love what I do. I love working aside social impact entrepreneurs. And I, so this is something that's, just something I've, I've kind of, from an intellectual human learning, have, have been interested in. I will say, if we want to go back to college for a minute, because I think that this is one of these yes ands. So what I'm really getting at is certificate-based um, education, work skills-best education, yes and college education. And if we want to dive into, again, because in a world where all employers are not yet converting to skills-based. And even when they do, a la my topic at the beginning, they still will be looking for college-based skills in combination with other skills, particularly at the highest income brackets, that then you work in the lens of the people I, that funding you is, is meeting the need for. We are talking about people who I, we are talking about our customers. We are talking about young people and families whose median income is about 65,000 and who many of whom's income is $40,000 or below. And in the United States, the single strongest lever for almost any kind of health of a child or a family is directly correlated to the income level of the mother in that family. So yes, an associate's degree means that a child will have a 13% chance of poverty, living in poverty. A a four-year college degree, if the mother has that, means the child will have a 4% chance of living in poverty. So if we will widen the lens and maybe instead get so caught up, less caught up in, does it have to be work skills or college? And we instead look at the fact that education in the United States ele lifts and elevates and secures people in a certain basic level of what I want as both a human and as a consumer and a taxpayer and as part of this larger community to be able to enjoy and also to have more people educated at the level to, to solve big problems like climate change, cancer, et cetera. Those things need education. So that's where I feel there's a very, there's a problem with a narrative that makes, uh, is, it, is college worth it? So that's again, again, long answer, but a lot of places to go there. So I think you're saying it's good for society. It's good for the economy. It's good for taxpayers. It's something we should support. And you talked about how you've owned the storytelling of how funding you is supporting 
those that want to go to college. Tell us more about that story. Thank you. Yes. So again, if we start with the concept that I fundamentally believe that it is important that young people and families in the United States have pathways to get the education completion that fits them and their career goals that and college being part of it. Um, we do, we, at Funding You, let me sidebar for a minute, at Funding You for the first five years of our existence, we were an entirely a single product. We provide last gap student loans to young people in college who have used all of their financial aid and grants and have a gap of five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars The actual median grant, uh, median gap is about $9,500. So, and that the, the choice as exists now, again, in a context of there are many things that are not working well in higher education today, and those things are being worked on. In the meantime, young people now, families now wanting to get their students through college face, face this gap. And they can, if their family is financeable, they could get a very well-priced co-signed loan from a bank or a HELOC or some other asset-based loan. And that will be something like in today's market so far, plus 300 basis points. So 8% or maybe seven and a half percent. If your family does not have assets or does not have prime credit, then your only option is a credit card or working 50 hours a week or choosing between food and classes. So that is for me, the, the genesis, the passion, the, the reason, um, the, the sort of fundamental, I can't walk around the world and know this happens without trying to work hard on it is, is why I started funding you and it's, it's what we do. So we provide to the student in that situation a loan that is not based on their parents' credit. It is likewise not based on their own FICO score. This is really what gets into us being a fintech, data-driven, tech-enabled lending company, highly um, attached to data and analytics. And everything going on in AI is super exciting with what we're doing. But what we do is we provide, we, we have a proprietary uh, algorithm that can assess and price the likelihood of a student to default on their loan without using their FICO-based credit. A young person doesn't have enough history to have anything meaningful for a traditional lender using FICO to make that, that risk calculation. So this is where sort of the mission and the business come together. Yes, we are providing a product that enables college completion, higher likelihood of employment, we also underwrite based on, on income. Um, we are rolling out some payment pro programs, uh, excuse me, some products that are basically income-based repayment. So we are very much about college completion and financial health. And though we, are, we have fundamentally built it on a data analytics model, which at the end of the day is agnostic completely um, and does not care, I say that with air quotes, um, that the underlying borrower has not had perhaps the same um, opportunities that the higher income uh, students in the US have had, but instead that it is now a, a readable software score that can be used to make a sound lending decision that will bring revenue to us right now funding you and, and ultimately my vision is that it will be used by other banks, uh, community banks and others who have uh, access to more efficient modes of capital or price of capital than, than we do. 
we, having done that and built our technology from the base, built the data and algorithm and really built a brand as being the lender that is attuned to the needs, not just the database need, the, the data as in non-FICO based pain point of a borrower who can't get a loan from a bank, but also a young person who has having their first experience with a financial product. We, we provide loans to, you know, 20 to 19 to 24 year olds for the most part. Um, and this is one of their first financial products. They they often have not been treated well by a bank, probably been declined for a student loan. They may have likewise seen or felt their own family not seem worthy, um, but in financial services, many of our borrowers have families who have low credit or have experienced bankruptcy or economic displacement. So they really come to this first financial interaction with a lot of distrust and a lot of feeling of, of being not worthy. So we have built our entire sort of DNA of our, our loan cadence, our technology, um, the language we use to being very attuned and empathetic to that borrower experience. So having done all of that, built that brand, built that reputation, we then two years ago started to get a lot of inbound traffic for large scale funders. Workforce development is, is one example. Large place philanthropic is another corporations looking to expand their scholarship into to expand the, the usage of their money from scholarship and sort of investigating ways to make the money go further. We have become a, a sort of end-to-end solution that will move that money from, for instance, the New Jersey Pay It Forward program is a $20 million public-private set of funds, half from the state of New Jersey Workforce Development Fund, half from New Jersey corporations who are concerned about lack of skills in certain areas they see as important to New Jersey companies, um, specifically healthcare and cyber tech. And they want that money, they want to use that money to upskill low-income New Jerseyans or reskill low-income New Jerseyans into these jobs that are needed. So what they need, I refer to in the middle, is the boring but important part where applications, data is tracked, money is moved, money is sent to schools, repayments are managed, and we provide all of that in the middle. So it's been super exciting. So our, you asked how we are closing the gap. We are still continuing to, we've done about 45 million loans to students at schools. Um, so sort of our traditional four-year product, we are gonna expand into a two-year product for students in community college. And we are providing that critical last gap, last mile piece of, of funding in a, in a risk-priced model and also providing more certificate work skill, skills-based training. Again, many of our partners use community college on our enterprise side. So I'm very, very, very proud of the fact that we are now expanding the kind of borrower who in some way can get a benefit from the products we provide. So it's been a super, super exciting thing to be building all this. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is inspiring. I think I heard you say that a lot of the secret sauce or the core of the company is around the tech and the data on underwriting, traditional lenders looking at collateral and historical income, and you're able to take into into account other factors like projected income. How do you go about building something like that? Right. So at the beginning, we, I mean, at the basics and the most essential, right? I'm, I'm in the business of, I, I lend Miles a dollar and over a certain amount of time, I want to be sure that Miles lends me back or it pays me back a dollar and 70 cents. I mean, sort of massively back of the napkin calculation of, of our particular product. So I, in building this company, 
I, at, at, like all lending companies, but particularly ours, I needed to, you know, on day one, when Funding You made its first loan, I needed to, and our data science team, have, have a thesis and a, a, a research and as much as we could at the beginning of the company, a data-based hypothesis for how to predict that, that you, will, you will pay me back. Because in a student loan, I have no collateral. I have only uh, forward-looking behaviors that, that you will achieve. So it's sort of simple in that if I if were literally Jeannie handing Miles a dollar and you're in college, first thing I'm going to want to ensure and that I'm going to be looking to, to assess whether I think you will successfully graduate because back to our conversation about college graduation, for various reasons that, that are both good and adjusting, college graduates are more highly employable, tend to get higher income, and then those without a college degree and tend to be much more, much less exposed to times of economic downturn. You know, in like 2009, I think the unemployment rate of college educated people was about 5%. Non-college people without college degrees was something like 16%. So that's the first thing I'm trying to predict. The second thing I'm trying to predict is will you become employed and I'm also trying to get a sense of how much money you will make because I'm trying to decide, okay, do I want to lend Miles a dollar or, or $10? Because if I lend him 10 and I think he can pay me back 10 17, $17, then I would rather do that. I'm going to make more money on, on more miles. So I'm also trying to do an assessment of how much money you're going to make as I think about myself as a lender. So long way of saying that we pulled together data that existed in 2017 along those lines. At that point, the majority of the data came from federal student loan payments and the outcomes of borrowers, uh, federal student loans and the out payment outcomes of students who took those loans. So that, and not surprisingly, the, the base case is that the key driver is graduation. So of all the students who default on their loans, federal loans, about 75% of them will have not completed the credential that they started to, to achieve. They're going to end up, and again, this is part of why degreed and other companies are super important because some college alone and no degree has been a dead end in the United States and it doesn't need to be. But in terms of how we assess in our product, we are looking at the behaviors that a student, as evidenced by their transcript, the academic behaviors and progress that, that they are achieving through school. So it's a combination of grades, although it's by no means all A's, but it's things like getting B or better in baseline freshman year classes. It is, in some ways, this one's a little variable, but a trajectory of grades, right? A student whose grades are going up or let me put it the other way, students whose grades are going down precipitously year over year in school, that begins to be a marker that they will not graduate. So we pulled together the, the data that existed as we started and had a, a sort of early stage um, algorithm screen, and then we started making loans. And this is the tough but essential part of being a lending company that is trying to, to build real proprietary data analytics, both for its value for our investors and our for our and for our products, but really fully for what we're trying to push at at the very edges here, which is the the inefficiency in financial markets when it comes to making giving credit and making credit decisions for young people is there's nothing for them to underwrite against except for 
having a, a, a co-signer. So in the biggest, most ambitious picture, our data, our data, our data, our data is the most important. The only way to get real data is to take the hypothesis we had and begin to make loans and see what happens. So that is how we built it. And that's where a lot of the social impact investment conversation came in because that kind of early capital to be used to make loans is an unusual you know, it, it's an, an animal that is not known. If it's known, it's disliked among traditional in, investors. So working with social impact investors, and in this case, lenders, was a key part of, of building our model. And it was absolutely a key part of the role of the social impact investor, as some of ours see it, which is we are, or they are, the impact investors and us, see their role as a not sacrificing return, understanding, however, and it, it just, there are different ways to talk about it. Some might be patient capital, but patient in the sense that there are certain things that are necessary to be done first in order to have an enormous financial and social impact outcome on the back end. And that the social impact investors who have engaged with us and with other companies like ours feel very, very much energized by that being their role and almost sort of like crazy, like a fox, right? Like I look like I'm doing something quote unquote nice because other investors don't really, you know, feel there's too much risk here, or they just simply don't like this kind of in investing, namely into loan capital. But in fact, as funding you gets built, as other social impact investments and companies get built, I will have been in at the ground floor. I will have early equity value, which some of our lenders did. I will have the cash flows from, from these loans. And I will be so truly double bottom line in terms of, of the return to, to investors. So I know I answered that. The data algorithm is is scored is geared towards ensuring that a student graduates from school. The next step is to ensure that that student is employable. And that's where we're getting into a lot of information that has to do with choosing what major you choose and your school's track record of placing people in a job related to your major and remain employed. So we look at a school's track record of placing computer science majors, for instance, psychology majors, English majors, within a job related to their field at full-time employment within six months after graduation. We then look at the the uh, amount of income that typically comes from people who graduate from school with a particular major. And we look to see, we look for basic financial health, again, because we want to be paid back, right? So would do me no good to give Miles Lasseter alone that is going to have a repayment that is vastly outpaces the income that he will be getting. You just you won't pay. I will I will have done myself no good. I'll have done you no good. So that is that that's that is not the most innovative thing we do. That is really just a basic debt to income um, calculation. But those are those are the data data inputs into into what we're what we have done, uh, we started with our hypothesis, and now what we are continuing to feed back into our data algorithm to make very, very meaningful adjustments as we go. So it's a super exciting time. Now we have about 4,100 borrowers who have taken funding new loans. About 30% of them are in full um, principal and interest repayment. Our borrowers do pay in school, and, that's, and that is actually a very important, that has proven to be predictive of after-graduation uh, payments post-graduation. But where we are as a company now, after 
five years of lending is, is having a critical mass and or leaning into even more what a data scientist would call as a critical mass of information to, to be able to have definitive opinions on what levers do move that will mean someone will successfully graduate from college, become employed, and be able to pay back, pay back our loan. So it's a pretty exciting thing. Yeah, definitely. I think founders fundamentally solve chicken and egg problems. And proving that your underwriting works before you have money is tough. It sounds like you cracked that in part by going to impact investors. But if you could say anything more about how do you prove your lending works before you have money to lend, that would be really helpful. Yeah, well, I, this is where I, I, I just said I don't like binary. So I'm sure this is not, this is binary and therefore I will be proven wrong at some point. I don't think you can. So I, I think any hypothetical scoring of any kind if it's talking about pricing risk on lending, should be it is it, it is um, to me. I don't, want, I don't want to say worthless. The value of it is is not much until it has been proven in in real world with with real people with real feedback. So I don't think there's a magic, there's a silver bullet for that. So how do you convince investors to give you the money before you've proven it works? you do a better job probably than I did in my excited, because I get so excited about our data. But what we did is we came to investors with a very succinct math-based, data science-based projected algorithm that was logical and based on data that existed and then engaged with investors who had double bottom line outcomes and were interested in double bottom line outcomes. And that continues today. So in other, the people who were going to give us money at the beginning were not ever going to be just yield interested. They had to have a second interest in mind for their investment. And we all make investments that we may lose. So as every, you could probably speak to this more than I could, because you've invested, you know, I've I don't have a lot of experience investing, but having worked with a lot of investors on the other side of the table, I understand that as investors, you make certain decisions based on certain things that are your risk appetite. So if at the table on the lending side, it required somebody who had interest in investing and getting a potential outcome that was both financial and mission, and they knew, like all investors, it may not work. So it was a matter, I think, of good old fashioned work, salesmanship, and though I really credit the nascent trend of impact investing. So I, I really credit people like you. I credit others who have carved out um, and, and are really looking hard at what does it mean to, to be part of this continuum of building companies that can can do good and do well. So it, it was it was definitely a, I hate to use this word, but kind of a win-win. Um, and we have brought return to our investors. We are paying back our lenders. And even even in the midst of fine-tuning our algorithm and, and getting our losses lower than, you know, our first, our first portfolio was all about testing and purposefully expecting losses kind of pushing the envelope. And so that is, to have investors at the beginning understand that was the use of their money Again, I guess it's investing 101. I keep coming back to it. It's, it's always what we entrepreneurs and investors are doing this dance, right? That, that, that I'm testing, you're investing. There's a certain amount of desire for the investor for me to want to test, right? And take some risk. 
and then, but just to be smart about it, to, to look at it and double down on what works and walk back from what doesn't like, that's really the dance that I've been in with all of my investors. But the, I would say the, there's this additional interest from the impact investor that in this dance, I'm not only telling them what revenue is increasing, what TAM I'm continuing to get, how my customer acquisition cost is coming down. They also want to hear how many, what's the social impact? How many students have successfully graduated? Um, what's the graduation rate of our borrowers compared to people who did not get our loan, people who are federal loan borrowers without this last gap loan we have? So it, it again, I'm probably boiling it down to too simple, but it is about just meeting the investment desire of the investor and doing my job on the other side of, of building what I want to build, but also being true to what they want to see in terms of their outcomes. Now, you talked about traditional banks and lenders having a lower cost of capital. And part of why you're doing, I imagine, is going to different types of investors over time as you have more proof points. You announced, for example, a deal with Goldman Sachs. I imagine you don't start there, right? Is right. there any advice you would offer to founders about how you sequence and move from one investor type to another? This is interesting. This is a very current conversation on my level to the board and with me and my team and our, our capital market strategy. So I'll answer the question first directly, which is you need to see your investor partnerships the same as your, you need to be as focused and strategic about who your correct investor partners are, just like the work you do when you go out and do customer discovery and figure out if you have proof of concept on your product. So you need to use that same muscle with investors. You need to go out and do customer discovery and say, would this be interesting to you? This is exactly what I did. Would it be interesting to you to get a, you know, I went to friendlies and then I got introductions to others and I suggested certain lengths of the loan. Like, you know, my first, one of my first meetings was with a family office where we were trying to pitch a, a very low cost of capital. A, I think this is back obviously when interest rates were different, but something like a four or 5% cost of capital on my brand new company, right? That had proven nothing that they would lend, lend that to us. And I went in on that pitch, I pitched it, et cetera. I talked to that very nice person afterwards who has since invested and realized that that was the exact wrong thing to do. I needed to instead say to him, what, this, is, this is what we're trying to achieve and what are the yield returns that you think would feel right with this? I mean, obviously I do a little research to begin with. I was meeting with a family office who was highly involved in philanthropy in education in Atlanta. So I guess I, I went past the at least do basic research to feel you're in the right room, right? But then ask questions of your potential capital providers with the same intentionality and time, willingness to be wrong and listen and willingness to think I, there maybe isn't a there there, right? So before you quit your day job, also do all of this. So that's tough. That's daunting. That's but it can also be energizing. And it was for me, if I could put it in the same excitement of going out and talking to college students and ask them, you know, why they were having trouble, what would be helpful to them? And, you know, would, are they using credit cards? And, and then also talking to some people I knew in the banking industry 
and getting a, a better sense about sort of why a co-signer was on every student loan. So it's more work to be starting a lending company because that's one more prong that you have to do customer service with, customer discovery with. Now, having said that, if you get it, it and it's the exact same thing, right? As we get customers, as we, as we build a business, we get we, we do customer discovery. If we're lucky, we get product market fit. If we're smart, we continue to in product market fit, not have blinders on, but continue to talk to our customers, look at our product, look at the macro and you know wiggle and pivot if we have to pivot, if you want to use that word, mini pivot. It's the same thing on the, on the um, capital market side, on the financing side. And, and you have to do that same really tricky thing as a startup person. You have to keep your true north, but be flexible. So what does that mean? What that means for funding you, for us, we are applying to become a CDFI. We are only talking to investors, um, lenders who have a Community Reinvestment Act mandate with their money. Our, our relationship with Goldman Sachs is with their Community Reinvestment Act division, and we can talk about what that means. But gen basically, that is, again, a double bottom line investor. They're not just as compared to hedge funds, who we also pitched we're interested, sounds great. Tell, come back when you have $200 million size portfolios and 24 months of pre repayment on your graduated students. And then we will talk to you. We aren't talking to that group other than keeping relationships warm anymore. In other words, that's not a customer fit for us. And instead, we are doubling down on being appealing to the capital market side who needs to fit a double bottom line because they have a CRA mandate to put a certain amount of their capital into the hands of companies like ours who serve a borrower who is like ours, has trouble getting traditional financial products because of their income or, or other factors. So it's been something that I think has helped me stay consistent. And anytime that the team or others kind of want to follow a sort of shiny object, we can come back to you know, on the capital market side, we can come back to, okay, we'll look at that. We'll, we'll certainly not close any doors, but our, our, our traction, we use EOS, our, our goal is this. Our goal is to, you know, by next year, have our CDFI license finished and have begin to have new conversations with community banks and others who are interested in CDFI lending. So I'm probably going a little too far into the weeds, but it's to be really rigorous around your financial partners as, as you grow. Well, thank you. The comparison of investor discovery to customer discovery is really fascinating. I also heard you mention EOS traction really quickly, and I want yeah. to highlight that for our listeners. What benefits have you gotten out of using that management system? <laughs> well, for me, I am the classic founder who is so excited about what I'm doing so excited about so many things involved in it. And as we started at the beginning, there are so many things about the existence of being a young person trying to finish their education credentials. There are a million things to get excited about that at Funding You, we could do with that. And that is, so I think a lot of founders struggle with that, right? Like we have a certain amount of resources and time and staying focused is something that's necessary. Although it's a really important gene that I have that I'm not afraid to go all over the place and look at a million things. So that's me. I know other, there are other founders I know who have more, I'm going to say they're more organized, but I, I think you kind of get what I'm saying. So what EOS Traction has done for me specifically 
as a founder has given me a framework to continue to be the visionary while I don't make the rest of my team go crazy um, and make people feel that they're getting mixed signals from me or, or tail, tail wag dog. So we've been using it for about two years and it was specifically something that I, we hired. Um, I hired a COO, Brandon McBride, who has a deep, deep expertise in lending at Sally Mae and at Skills Fund and other places, but also was a big proponent of traction. And when he came in, and I, I hired him explicitly because we needed more rigor around our operations because we were in that wonderful position of growing, right? And so we needed to have more, more work on our operations. Again, it was getting a little messy. And you know, we, we went from four employees to eight employees. I think we had about 10 so Brandon came in with that charge and he specifically said, I want to use traction as part of solving this for funding you. So for us, it has been super important. I will say it has not been perfect. And well, I will say like anything, you only get as much out of it as you put into it. And we used it for about six or seven months. And then we again had this growth turn of the wheel and we were super busy with our enterprise product. We had all this inbound excitement and traffic. And then we realized we made a couple mistakes with traction because we hadn't been doing the 90 day check-in. And so, you know, if you're going to use it, you got to, that's, that would be my other, my other piece of advice. Like if you're going to take on these systems, you really do need to use them and invest in them, or you've kind of done the worst of all worlds, but you've done it a little bit, spent some good quality time on the team, you know, in some of the early traction that we did in the first six or seven months of using it. And then, and then you don't use it and it just becomes the whole thing is the initial time put in becomes a little bit of a waste. So we have enjoyed it. I just would caution people, you know, you got to really commit to it. Do you have any other tactical advice for other founders? Tactical advice, I would say, I think the thing that has been, and this is attraction, this is attraction thing, although it's, it's, I would have said it before attraction and it's the right butts and the right seats part of traction, which is to be very Again, this is being, and I'm also a Brene Brown person, right? So this is being, you have to be uncomfortable. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and you have to constantly be assessing in a world where you are short resource, right? Because we just did our series A, we're still in a world and maybe you should always be in a world where you're seeing your resources as very precious, but that's just constantly been, I'm, I'm speaking now to probably early stage startup people in a tactical way that you need to be, okay with always looking at where the butts are in the seats and making tough decisions and meaning either removing people or letting people go. We haven't had to do a lot of that, but you need to be able, I think, to look at that head on. And I think that that, that is what really allows, allows for, for growth. I think the other tactical thing is as early as you can get somebody both inside the company who you can this sort of has to do with hire people who are smarter than you are and also be comfortable with that. So build a senior team, however that looks for you, of people that you are very comfortable with. If you're the CEO and you ultimately make the decisions, I'm not saying that that's not the case. There needs, I don't believe companies can be run by consensus. I don't think anybody does or by group consensus. But I, my other tactical advice would be to have at least one person internal who you feel very, you have a relationship such that you can really, they can push back against you and that they look at things differently than you and that they have a deep expertise in something that in the core business that you don't. I would also say have somebody like that outside the company, maybe less important that they have a core expertise in, in the business, but certainly 
somebody outside of the company. For me, it's been a board member who you also can engage with in that way. And I think those two things, somebody inside and somebody outside. Well, thank you. I really appreciate how in this conversation, we started very zoomed out on the industry and then we've gone very narrow and tactical. <laughs> That's true. That's and true. Uh, I think that that is a, is, a, is a great place to end for us with a specific charge to founders on how to build the right team. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks, Miles. I um, I think you 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 hemmed me in. My brain goes a million places, and and you kept pulling me back. So I to to the focus. So I appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much. Take care. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.